When I requested a podium, I was really expecting one of those that's just solid all the way down because what I wanted to do is put a step stool here (laughs) so I could go up because I realized how much your eyes are trained to be looking a little bit higher. I'm going to set my Bible aside because uh, I've got it memorized. No, that's not true. No, I'm just kidding. I'm still working on Nahum. That is a Bible book. So let me add my welcome to what has already been said, um, my personal welcome. If you are new to Midway, and we're welcome to everybody, but especially if you're new to Midway and you're looking for a church home, I urge you not to make up your mind about Midway until Pastor Dean comes back, (laughs) okay? We love Pastor Dean. Uh, Now, Dean, if you're here, you're watching Dean, you need to plug your ears while I extol your virtues uh, there. But Pastor Dean preaches expositionally. What that means is that he takes us through on Sunday mornings verse by verse of a study of a book of the Bible. In fact, we just finished 1 Thessalonians. At least we think we just finished 1 Thessalonians. The the fact that he's on the last verse of the book doesn't necessarily mean the end (laughs) is necessarily that that near. Uh, So, Expositional preaching is generally considered better for a steady diet of Sunday morning sermons rather than topical. Topical would be another way to preach. Uh, and again, topical preaching, it's good every once in a while to, to do a topic, you know, like uh, 10 ways Jesus can help you balance your checkbook or uh, 100 ways Satan uses Georgia 400 to stumble you in your faith, <laughs> whatever, whatever the topic is. They're not totally verboten, but generally exposition is is better. Having said that, however, we will in due course turn to our topic uh, this morning. Uh, So you'll see what it is. I hope, left to my own devices, I think I would steer towards topics for reasons that will become uh, evident here in a moment. But left to my own devices, that's what I I would do. I'm oriented that way because of my uh, position as a seminary professor now, some of you, I appreciate Mark doing the intro. We should do that with Dean every week, don't you think? Just go, ladies and gentlemen, our preacher today is, yeah, yeah, we all know who Dean is. But I appreciate him saying the few words that he did. But one thing that he did not say, but I want to let you know, you may not know this, I don't think he said it, was that the leadership here at Midway has graciously added Rebecca, my wife Rebecca, there she is, wave your crutch in the air. No, don't do that my wife Rebecca and me to the mission giving of the church. You may wonder what's going on here. Uh, So let me just say a little bit about what that looks like uh, in terms of my and our function as missionaries, if you will. Now, Rebecca actually has missionary cred because she actually grew up on the mission field in Brazil. So she speaks fluent Portuguese if any of you are interested in that, or Russian, because her dad is, is Russian. So they, she's a missionary kid, so she's got missionary uh, creds. But let me, before I give you some specifics about our ministry, and then I'll segue into the topic at hand. I'm hoping that my topic will have enough scripture to really make it sound like it's expositional. But don't tell Dean whether I succeeded or not at that. I'll let him, him judge. But let me set the context a little bit. He mentioned the fact, and by the way, if you've noticed the extra security around the, uh, the, the church this morning. It's because they, the, the tech crew in the back actually lent out the clicker. Okay, so they've got guards at the door 
in case anyone tries to abscond with the clicker. This is a lot of power here. So pray for me that I don't all of a sudden reformat the entire church's hard drive or whatever <laughs> by pushing the wrong, wrong button or something. Uh, so Mark mentioned, I want to set this in context and give you some specifics about our ministry before we get to the topic at, at hand. He's already mentioned that I am provost at Southern Evangelical Seminary, and I think Bill Thompson has commissioned a fact-finding committee to figure out exactly what a provost is and what they do. So as soon as you guys figure that out, you let me know. Right? Typically, a provost is a chief academic officer at an academic institution. We really already had that at the seminary, so I didn't really need to step in for that. But it was a title given to me uh, so I could uh, play the role in some as needed as special advisor to the president for reasons that aren't particularly interesting to you, but you can talk to me about it otherwise. But he, we counseled it. he counsels with me, and we talk about various things regarding the, the boundaries of our seminary theologically and otherwise, making sure everything is, is if you will, copacetic. He also mentioned that I uh, occupied the chair of Norman L. Geisler Chair of Christian Apologetics and, and Philosophy, and that's really what matters to me. Norman Geisler was a co-founder of our seminary, and he's like, he was my mentor, when I studied under him at Dallas Seminary back in 19... <coughs> <laughs> and, um, and then he became like a second father to me over the years. So that was, that was a privilege. Now I want to say a little bit about apologetics, but my title includes philosophy and apologetics. I, I don't want you to worry. We're not going to do philosophy. Uh, they wouldn't let me do that, but I was going to try. But it, we, couldn't, we couldn't squeeze it in. We really didn't have enough time is the problem. Both my MA and my PhD are in philosophy from state universities. A lot of Christians have asked me over the years, what's it like to study philosophy at a state university as a Christian? I think a lot of Christians would be surprised to see how much of a presence Christianity has in a lot of Anglo-American, otherwise secular universities. In fact, the running joke around our house during college football season is I typically will root for a team based on who I know teaches in the philosophy department. You know, so Linda Zabzewski, who's the chairman of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Oklahoma, uh, she's the chairman of the Society of Christian Philosophers, for example. So I pull for them over some pagan school, wouldn't you? That's what I do. Uh, so my, my MA is from Ole Miss. My PhD is from University of Arkansas. At least I stayed in the SEC. That's all I've got to say, whatever else one might say about studying at a secular university. But I have discovered over the years that a lot of Christians, not necessarily a lot here at Midway, perhaps, but generally speaking, a lot of Christians are not real clear in their mind exactly what apologetics is. I want to say a few words about that so you can understand what it is that Rebecca and I do together in our, in our ministry that hopefully warrants your in investment in us, for which we are incredibly uh, grateful. Uh, the, the key verse is out of First Peter. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That's the go-to verse. So the idea of defense there comes from the Greek word apologia, where we get the English word apology and apologetics. But typically now in English, by apology, we mean sort of this, this admission of wrongdoing. And I'm really sorry that I poked you in the eye with an ice pick. You know, that was an accident. I was going for your nose. No. <laughs> but in uh, the first centuries, the Greek word was actually used like a defense. If you went to court and you gave a defense for your actions, that was called giving an apology. 
So that's been picked up for this discipline known as apologetics. So in a, in a sense then, apologetics is just defending the faith. Now what does that mean to defend the faith? You think about the number of things that might be challenged in your Christian uh, thinking. How, how do you know God exists? You know, how, how do you even know? There's a lot of atheism in our, in our culture. I've had the pleasure of debating atheists on, on occasion. Uh, how do you know the Bible is the Word of God? What, why do you believe that? What about the Quran or what about the Book of Mormon or any other uh, almost countless sacred books out there? How do you know that? And besides that, how do you even know that your Bible has come down intact to you? It's uh, 2,000 years of history that it's been handed down through all kinds of transmissions and manuscripts and things. How do you even know that the Bible you're reading today is the Bible as the prophets and apostles actually wrote it? How do you answer those kind of questions? How do we know that Jesus is the Son of God, our topic for today here in a moment. Almost all my classes are Zoomed. I just wish that I could have invested in Zoom in 2019. You know, wouldn't that have been a great investment to go... Uh, and so, by the way, I teach classes. That's my full-time job, if you will, at the seminary. Almost all of them now are through Zoom. So that's why I live in Atlanta and the seminaries in Charlotte. I'm beginning several classes in January, by the way. You can audit these classes. Talk to me about that. I'm starting a class in January 10th on uh, Introduction to Apologetics, uh, what I'm just talking about. Also starting a class on the 19th that meets weekly. That uh, apologetics class is in one week. All the lectures are in one week. Starting a Wednesday night class for the semester on contemporary atheism. Uh, so if you're interested in atheism and its various manifestations in our culture. And in March, I get to do a class on world religions. But more relevant than the things I do at the seminary, because that's not really what the church's motivation was as far as thinking about adding us to the uh, church giving. That's called a dramatic pause, by the way. <laughs> what I try to avoid doing is talking while I'm doing that. Otherwise, the people with the MP3 are going, something went wrong with it because all of a sudden it went like this. Can you give me another copy? Because that was a... <laughs> Here's some things that are going on with Rebecca and, and me in terms of our, our, our ministry. Uh, I've had the opportunity to do recently, I'm going to give you some examples of just some recent writing that I've done. So it's kind of who you know when you get to write these things, chapters or articles and encyclopedias and stuff. So the most recent is the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, Exploring Ultimate Questions About Life. Uh, and the cosmos, and I wrote the chapter title, Has Science Disproven Miracles in the Supernatural? And sh How Should Christians Think About Origins? Because young earth, old earth, and these kind of debates rage uh, among e evangelicals. So I tried to referee that debate a little bit, though personally I'm young earth creationist, but I uh, hope I have a charitable way of dealing with the debate itself. Uh, we also, I also had the opportunity to contribute a chapter to a book that came out just before the Comprehensive God called The Morality Wars, The Ongoing Debate Over the Origins of Human Goodness. This is actually a collection of chapters from both Christians and atheists on the idea of morality, its connection to God, and its intersection with, with human beings. And I wrote the chapter titled uh, Natural Law Theory. Some of you and I have talked about natural law. It's sort of our heritage as Americans as a theory of, a philosophical theory of morality and its connection with God that we see in, in, imbibed in the Declaration of Independence, for example. 
Uh, before that, I had the opportunity to write a chapter titled Answering the Music Man, Dan Barker's Arguments Against Christianity. Dan Barker is an uh, atheist. He used to be a music. well, he's still a musician, but he used to write a lot of music full-time, so that's where the title of the book came from. And my chapter in there is titled uh, A Thomistic Argument for God's Existence. Thomistic is just the adjective form of the proper name Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century philosopher. I know you all can't wait to curl up with that chapter going, uh, it's a page turner, you know. I got to see how this one ends. God exists. Oh, that's wonderful. At any rate, so it's a philosophical argument for the existence of God. And then last one to mention, probably the one that means the most to me, is a chapter that I contributed to. I am put here for the defense of the gospel. It's a Feshrif in honor of Norman Geisler. A Feshrif is a book of articles in honor of a living person. Uh, Dr. Geisler has now gone to be with the Lord, but I wrote the chapter titled Defending the Handmaid, How Theology Needs Philosophy. It's a very self-serving chapter to write since that's my training as as a philosopher. Also, I have opportunity to do a lot of public speaking, uh, and and for a while there I was actually doing that more than I was teaching at the seminary. One of the uh, auspices under which I get to do a lot of speaking is Ratio Christi, and the giving that Midway does enables me to do this because most of the time, the Ratio Christies, let me tell you what they are. They are campus apologetic clubs on university campuses around the world, close to 200 campuses now. But 99 times out of 10, as we would say in Mississippi, where I grew up, uh, the college students don't have the budget to really pay for somebody's expenses and things. So what you're doing is helping us defray those expenses when opportunities come uh, to, to speak. So because of Ratio Christi, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of speaking across the lower 48. I just got back from Alaska. It was 40 degrees and raining. I said, I can get 40 degrees and raining in Atlanta. I don't need to go to Alaska to get 40 degrees and raining, but nevertheless. Uh, also, South Africa. i uh, been there six times in person and Zoomed countless times uh, since. And, and uh, that, that's, by the way, a long flight from nonstop from Atlanta to Johannesburg. But at least it's all downhill. It's coming back that's really hard to get up over the equator uh, as you do that. And then also a lot of opportunities under the auspices of, of Rasha Christie to do a lot of teaching in the Philippines. And actually the Philippines Zooming actually includes a lot of people who aren't necessarily in the Philippines. They're in the Middle East and even in parts of Europe. So it's a great opportunity. Zoom has really opened up a lot of uh, uh, great opportunities to do that. Another opportunity coming up I'll let you know about is the DEFEND conference uh, coming up in uh, January, January 3rd through 7th. It's an annual apologetics conference done on the campus of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. So I'll be there for that. Very grateful for it. Uh, also, I get to do every year as one of the instructors with uh, Frank Turek's Cross-Examined Instructor Academy. And this is something you might want to consider as well. It's for anybody of any age that if you think, you know, I'd like, I know some apologetics. I've studied, I've read Frank's book or something like that. But I, I, I would be interested in knowing how I can be a better presenter of apologetics. Anything from I want to be able to teach apologetics to my middle school children at my church to I want to be the next and then whoever you can think of as the premier apologist like, say, a Frank Turek, for example. Say, I want to be the next Frank Turek on on the horizon and anything in between. So it's a three-day training session. Slots are limited because we keep the student ratio uh, low, but uh, look into cross-examine 
org for information about that. Now, Rebecca's ministry is equally, if not more, vital. Most of you are aware uh, that she walks with crutches because of her, quote, condition. Now, I'll, I'll let her fill you in on what that condition that she has is. She's not shy about talking about it. Uh, but if you're curious about what it is, why is it that you have to have crutches? Uh, but let it suffice to say here that her condition has given her the opportunity to have very nearly 40 orthopedic surgeries in her life, okay? I think when she gets to 40, they'll give her a set of steak knives or something at the, at the thing. I'm sorry, I stole that joke from, uh, from Tom Cruise uh, there. But when you're in the hospital that much, especially when you're in one locale, as we've been in here in Atlanta for an Atlanta area for a number of years, even before we were here at Midway, that has occasioned her the opportunity to develop really meaningful, especially prayer relationships with medical professionals in the orthopedic, especially community. And so I'll, again, let her share with you some of the stories, talk to her about some of the opportunities that God has opened up over the years Uh, lying on the table before you go under anesthesia, praying and talking with medical professionals. A tremendous number of of opportunities. Dr. Ken Boa is an apologist in the Atlanta area. Some of you may be familiar with his work. He put together a, I think it's a six-part, Rebecca, six-part series, uh, video interviews titled Shaped by Suffering. So it's interviews with Christians whose testimony is how God has used suffering in their life to give them the ministry that they have. And so that's what she had the opportunity to do. She's one of the six interviews. So I invite you to go. You can either go to my and our YouTube channel and find the video, or you can just search on YouTube, Shaped by Suffering. (laughs) Sorry. Shaped by suffering, and you can find that. And there she explains what the condition is that she has and how God has used that in her life, not only to minister to others with the same ailment, if you will, but also more broadly people that are in the midst of suffering physically and otherwise. And God has sculpted her character and her wisdom uh, along those contours and has, is using her mightily in, in that regard. And, of course, the most challenging aspect of her ministry is being married to me, okay? Now, seriously, though, uh, over and over again, we use the expression, something will happen, and we'll look at each other and go, we make a great team. We make a great team. And I'm not saying this because this is the kind of stuff that spouses are supposed to say about each other or more uh, expected someone would say in public about somebody else. But I, I mean this, in a very literal way in terms of my actual life, I could not do what I do as a professor, as a writer, and a public speaker without her. And those of you who know us closely enough know how much she dots the I's and crosses the T. I would be crossing the I's and dotting the T's if it was left up to me. So we make a a great team. All right, so let's turn to the topic at hand. Some people today in my experience, claim that, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Remember our passage, who do you say that I am, right? Jesus never claimed to be God, or the Bible doesn't really teach that he is God. I was watching recently a debate 
between uh, Peter Williams, who's the principal of Tyndale House in Cambridge, England. It's a Christian think tank and research center. And Bart Ehrman, some of you are familiar perhaps with Bart Ehrman, who is a professor at University of North Carolina in religious studies. Chris, Peter Williams is a, is a uh, Christian. Bart Ehrman is an agnostic. Bart used to be a Christian, quote-unquote, early in his life. He lost his faith in college. He went on to get probably the most impeccable credentials you can get in terms of the, of the uh, early manuscripts of the Bible, believe it or not. But he's turned his critical thinking against a lot of the claims of Christianity. And their debate was precisely on, did Jesus claim to be God? Now, I haven't finished the debate, so I don't know what Peter's full arguments are going to be. I don't know that they're what I'm going to argue here uh, in just a moment. But nevertheless, uh, it just occasions the opportunity to bring this subject up to go, you know what, there's a lot of this going on where people are challenging. Now, I submit to you, and when I teach and public speak, I submit a lot of things. That what, what that does is lets me get away with a lot of stuff. They go, well, you know, you really didn't prove that point. I know, I was just submitting it to you. You know, get off my back. What do you want? But I submit to you that the reason why people say that, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God or the Bible never says that Jesus is God. The reason they say that, I think, a lot of times, is because they're expecting Jesus to say that or the Bible to say that the way someone would say it today in the 21st century Western culture. What would you have to say if you wanted to tell somebody that you thought you were God? Well, you would probably just go, hey, hey, I'm God. You know, you'd probably do something like that. You probably wouldn't whistle at him because God wouldn't do that, would he? Um, right? You would, you would be sort of direct and blunt. What we have to do when we're exploring, well, what is the testimony and evidence for Jesus' divinity? What we have to do, I think, is go, well, how would people say that in the way, how would Jesus say it in the time and culture in which he lived, and how would the Bible say that in the time and culture in which it was written? That's, I think, what the onus is for us to do. So what I'd like to do, occasioned by the verse that we already read out of Matthew Uh, who do you say that I am? I just want to say a few words about that subject. Who do you say that I am? So if you will, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. Now, Mark last week set the bar pretty high for how many verses of Scripture you could actually get away with in one one sermon, okay? So I don't know that I can match that, but I'm going to do my best. So what I'm going to do with your permission, I mean, what are you going to do, fire me? Actually, you probably could, given that we're on the... No, never mind. Um, is I want to just give you a battery of verses. To this end, I submit to you that the first five chapters of Matthew, the events in the life of Jesus, are a reenactment of the history of Israel from primarily the Exodus to Mount Sinai. And it is a literary... It really happened, but it is also a literary device to scream to the reader that this man is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what Matthew is wanting us to conclude. This idea that there are people, events, and things largely in the Old Testament that foreshadow things in the New Testament, not just symbols and not just prophecies, but narratives is often called typology. 
uh, typology. If I just happen to accidentally use that word, that's what I'm referring to. So we'll talk about then in answering the question, who do you say that I am? And as Jesus even asked the disciples, what about you? Who do you say that I am? We can take that to ask ourselves. Uh, A little bit about the history of Israel and the deity of Christ. So first of all, uh, notice what Jesus says there in Luke when he's on the road to Emmaus, you know, and he's like, can you imagine? He took all of the things of the prophets in, in in the narratives in the Old Testament and taught these two gentlemen as they walked on the road. Can you imagine what that Bible study would look like? I submit that it probably looks similar to what we can discover here in Matthew. So, first of all, let's just look at some parallels. And if you will indulge me, what I want to do here, in case I stumble on a slide that I can't read because my eyes aren't that good, I'm going to cheat a little bit. And I've got those slides on my handy-dandy Kindle. This is like NASA technology. It's like space age, okay? So, first, we look at the birth of Israel, the birth of the nation. Here I am awkwardly scrolling through my Kindle fire. This is just talk among yourselves while I get to that slide. <laughs> you quit laughing. It's not that funny, is it? No. So the birth of Israel. They sacrificed to demons, not to gods, to, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear, of the rock who begot you. Notice that. The rock who begot you, you are unmindful. You have forgotten the God who fathered you. What about Jesus? Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was of follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded, minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived of you, to repeat, is of the Holy Spirit. What about their going down into Egypt? Israel goes down into Egypt in Genesis 46. They took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him. What about Jesus? He went down into Egypt. Matthew 2, and when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Then he arose and took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And they both come up out of Egypt. Israel, Exodus 10, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Jesus comes up out of Egypt. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to Joseph in in, in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, go to the land of Egypt, uh, for those who sought the young child are dead. And he arose and he took the child and his mother. They came up out of the land of Israel. They both go into the waters of baptism. And we need Paul to help us understand what was happening in Exodus 14. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And Jesus is baptized. When he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove alighting on him. They're both the Son of God. 
Israel in Exodus 4. And the Lord said to Moses, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Hosea says the same thing. Hosea 11, When the Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I have called my son. In fact, Matthew actually quotes Hosea here in, in his narrative. And Jesus is the Son of God, Matthew 3. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we don't have time to explore. Well, in what sense is Israel the Son of God and versus Jesus being Son of God? And I thought he was the only begotten. Those are very rich explorations to do. We'll have to do that under another occasion uh, uh, if God, God wills. Uh, they, they, go, they both go into the wilderness in Deuteronomy 8. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all these ways, these 40 years in the wilderness, sorry, to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And, of course, Jesus goes into the wilderness, Matthew 4. Uh, sorry, Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. They each go through temptations. Take a look at what happens in the temptations. In the first temptation... You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry. And in every instance when Israel went through their temptation, they failed the test. Exodus 16 tells us, The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Jesus is tempted. Satan says to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. But in every instance, Jesus passes the test. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that preaches out of the mouth of God. Notice the contrast between their declaration of dying in Egypt versus Jesus' declaration about living by the word of God. In the second temptation, Israel in the wilderness, there was no water for the people to drink. Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And again, they, they failed. He named the place Massah and Mirabah because of the quarrel of the sons of God because, what? They tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Jesus was tempted. If you are the son of God, Satan said, <clears throat> excuse me, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And what does Jesus say? On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord the God, your God to the test. And then the third temptation, Israel, Deuteronomy 6, you shall fear only the Lord God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of people around you. Again, they fail the temptation. He, Aaron, took this, the gold, from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And then they, Israel, said, this is, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Jesus is tempted. Satan says, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus responds, or Satan said, did I say Jesus? Or did I get it right? Sorry, I want to go back and edit. Will you guys edit that out there if I did that wrong? And Jesus responds, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now we come to Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, verses, or 
compared to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to just give you a battery of bullet points. This is the hand signal for bullet points. We're learning sign language, so if you do that, that's... I just made that up. That's not really true. Don't, don't go tell Joy I said that. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah Sherry, Sherry will do that. After, after you kill Stu, I think, right? I heard that, I heard that, by the way. That's an inside joke. I want to give you a series of bullet points about some of the elements to notice about what Israel was going through and what was happening at Mount Sinai. Israel camped before the Lord. Uh, God was on the mountain. In fact, the, the deities were always thought to be up on mountains. That's why the altars to the false gods were always in the, quote, high places. Moses went up the mountain. Moses had to convey to the people the words of God. Moses had to convey to God, convey to God the words of the people. And the people were not allowed to go up the mountain, nor even touch the base of the mountain, or they would be put to death. Let's continue the list. Israel, let me get my hair, they could only meet with God at the foot of the mountain. The mountain was filled with smoke. And all of this, I submit to you, and other things we could say, depicted the separation that existed between God and man because of our our sin, because of the fall. That's supposed to accentuate in a person's mind that we are separate and other than God. There's something different about him namely his righteousness. And then God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and then the balance of Leviticus redounds with this refrain, God repeatedly says, Be holy, for I am holy. Now let's compare that to what was going on. Let's start back the list over and compare that what's going on with Jesus. The multitude followed Jesus to the mountain. Jesus is on the mountain. Now right there, I submit, Matthew is deliberately trying to get the reader, if a person is familiar enough with their Old Testament, to go, you're, you're putting this guy in the role of Yah. You're telling us, literally, that this man thinks he's God. Uh, Moses, all the Moses went up the mountain. The people had to convey uh, to Moses, and Moses had to convey to God. There was no intermediary between Jesus and his audience. There's a hint of something going on. And more conspicuously, in verse 1, it explicitly says that his disciples followed him up onto the mountain, unlike the children of Israel who could not go up onto the mountain. Let's continue. Uh, By by the way, just notice that contrast there. They couldn't go up the mountain, but Jesus' disciples could go up on the mountain. All right, let's continue the the comparison and contrast. Uh, They could only meet with God at the foot of the mountain. The mountain was filled with smoke, and all this depicts this separation. But there is no separation with what is going on in the Sermon on the Mount. There was no separation between Jesus' disciples because Jesus brought them up to the mountain where God is, as at Mount uh, Sinai. And then Moses gives the Ten Commandments. Jesus gives the Beatitudes. The Ten Commandments are the principles according to which you live in the Old Covenant. The Beatitudes are the principles according to which you live in the New Covenant. And then as God repeatedly said, be holy for I'm holy, Matthew 5 ends with the verse, therefore be perfect or holy just as your Father in heaven is holy. Now let me just make a few observations as I draw this to an end. As I've hinted at and really said explicitly, 
It's a deliberate, both parallel and in, in kind of reverse parallel. It's an inverse in the punch in the punchline. It's an inverse of Mount Sinai. In that now, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, there is no more separation between God and man. First Peter tells us in three eighteen, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Another thing to notice is what is known as a stitch in Matthew 5, 1 and 2. Let me just remind you what that verse says there. And seeing the multitudes, he went up to the mountain, and when he had seated his disciples, when he had seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Now, question, where in the narrative have we already encountered the concept and the thought of a mouth? You go back to Matthew 4. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus opens his mouth saying, and Matthew is trying to get the reader to say, this man is God. We live by his words, and uh, he is in the place of Yah because he is Yah. He is God in the flesh. Now, I find that very interesting, and let me just tell you quickly without detail that there are a lot of these kinds of parallels and typologies and stuff between the life of Jesus and the uh, life of Israel, all for the purpose of pointing to the fact that he's divine. I just want to give you a, another, what is this? Bullet list uh, of that. And, and, and in fact, this is, this is uh, out of the Gospel of John. A lot of the vignettes of John as they go through the life of Jesus, they're reenactments of Old Testament stories. Uh, and so many of them. I'll just give you some without, without elaboration. Uh, in the beginning... John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning, Jesus. You know, in the beginning, uh, God, uh, for, uh, for, uh, in, uh, sorry, in Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, it's God. In G- John 1.1, 1, 1, <coughs> it's the Word. You should be reminded right away that John 1.1 1, 1 sounds like Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus is with God, John 1.1. 1, 1. The prophet, there was a prophet prophesied to come whom God knew face to face. The Greek word, Translated with is the word pros, P-R-O-S. It is connected to the same Greek word, to a Greek word for face, which is prosopon. And when I submit to you, John is deliberately talking about Jesus being with God to hearken back that he's face to face with God to fulfill this prophecy that God was going to send someone from among their brethren likened unto Moses whom God knew face to face. I said I wasn't going to elaborate on these, didn't I? I lied. Uh, the word dwelt among us, John 1.14. God was in the tabernacle. The Greek word translated dwelt, skeneo, uh, is the verb form of the noun translated in the Old Testament, tabernacle. If you, could, if you could, you could translate this verse, and the word tabernacled among us. Again, hearkening back to the tabernacle, which is where God would appear to the children of Israel. John 1.14 says, we beheld his glory. This should remind you of the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle. This is a reenactment of what's going on there. How about John at the end of the chapter, 1 John, 
Uh, We have angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This should remind you of Jacob's ladder, where the angels were ascending and descending on the ladder. What is the ladder? The ladder is that which is going to connect us with us as humans and God. It's going to be this sort of bridge. Well, who is that bridge? It's the Son of God. It's God in the flesh. It's the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, uh, grace and truth, John 1.17, came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. So where does grace and truth find its origin? It wasn't given to Jesus. He gives it. That's because he is God where grace and truth finds its origin and grounding. And then lastly, one that's very interesting, and you could spend really a a, a lot of fun time on it, just like we tried to do with Matthew 1 through 5, the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, or 753 and then uh, 8, 1 through 11, uh, and Israel in, quote, adultery, in their immorality and idolatry uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, I just want to let you know, because the first place you hear this does not need to be when you're on the college campus or on a YouTube video, but John 7:53 through 8:11 is not found in most, or really any, ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. That's led a lot of critics to claim it's not original with John. It's been inserted. Problem is, it shows up in the manuscripts that it does show up in over such a broad geographical area so long ago as it did show up that the only way to explain where it ever came from is it has some kind of root in antiquity. And I would argue, and I could give you some information to this end, that it indeed is, is consistent with John. It fits the narrative, it fits the language, and these kind of things. But here's a teaser to go look at it for yourself. Remember in John uh, 8 where Jesus' woman is brought to him before him in adultery and he bends down and he writes with his finger in the sand? Remember that? And I said, what, did, what did he write in the sand? And then the narrative goes along and then it repeats and Jesus writes. It doesn't mention the finger. Remember that? You look back when the law was given to Moses and the first time the law was given it explicitly says it was written with the finger of God. But then, of course, Moses crashes the tablets. God has to give it back to him. Second time it's given, doesn't mention the finger. And I submit to you that John is expecting his readers to notice this is, this is the giver of the law. This isn't Moses, the receiver of the law for us. This is the origin of the law. This man is God in the flesh. So we're back to our question then. Who do you say that I am? And I would like to think that if anybody here has doubted that, um, that we can come to the conclusion that Paul came to in Philippians 2, 5 through 6. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, that is something to be hung on to, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. So I trust that if you've never considered the claims of Christ on your life and you're curious, exactly how does that death accrue to life eternal for me? The short answer is the punishment that you and I deserve because of our sin against an infinite creator God and his infinite holiness. That punishment was directed away from us 
onto Jesus as our Savior. What are we required to do? Nothing. What are we supposed to do? Trust him. Believe what he said. Romans, Romans 4, 4 and 5. And I'll end with this. One of my favorite passages in the scripture. that says, to him who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as a debt. But to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. As I pray and the praise team comes up, uh, would you bow with me? Father, we're so grateful beyond words, those of us who know you through your son Jesus. Every time we're reminded of, of what he did for us to take on the punishment that we deserve so that we could be given eternal life as a gift, a free gift. So we just thank you for that. And I pray if any of your children here today have been discouraged by the exigencies of life, that we can be re-energized in our enthusiasm and hope that someday you're going to raise us from the dead and we're going to live pain-free, tear-free in communion with you for all eternity. But also pray for anyone who might be in the sound of my voice, either in this room, by Zoom, streaming rather, by uh, listening to a recording after the fact that if they're not sure where they stand with you, that you will open their eyes as you did Lydia to heed the things that are spoken in your word, all for your honor and glory. In In Jesus' name we pray, amen.